Making Media Tells a Story of Our Media Business Colossus. If you aren't familiar with our platform, make sure to check out joincolossus.com. There you'll find our latest episodes across each of our shows, the transcripts, supporting third-party materials, and even some written content as well. So whether you're an investor or an operator, we're out to create the content that we wish we had when we were in those exact roles. Invest like the best, business breakdowns, Web3 breakdowns, and founders each cover different angles of the ecosystem. And our special series like 50X and Return on India are targeting niche topics. Again, make sure to check out joincolossus.com for more on the platform. Let's do this. Welcome to Making Media. Humans are in an eternal quest for convenience. Save me time, make my life easier. My gosh, that was such a good start to an interview. A special announcement today, and it pairs with this episode of Making Media. The Colossus Merchandise Shop is opening for business. If you're listening to this, that means we avoided my biggest fear. We did not break the internet. But please head over to joincolossus.com where you will find a link to our shop. Staying on that theme, Dom and I hosted Michael Williams from A Continuous Lean for a timely conversation on branding, merchandise, and how companies can differentiate themselves. With this show, we plan to sit down with many traditional media guests, but we also hope to introduce you to some insightful people outside of your orbit. Michael has been writing about historic heritage brands for over 15 years. In a world where every website kind of looks the same, every gift guide has the same recommendations, it all feels a bit homogenous. Michael is consistently presenting original things. Those original things are often tied to historic brands, which is its own funny paradox, but you're likely to find new things that you're not finding elsewhere. And for this conversation, we talk about Michael's own content to commerce journey with a continuous lean. We pick his brain on what makes for historic brands, what makes for good marketing. And then we run through a bunch of fun examples of corporate merchandise, like the Domino's Rolex or the historic New Yorker tote. So make sure to check out Michael at a continuous lean. And lastly, you will hear me shamed throughout this episode for not having a Colossus merchandise shop. And all I will say is that once again, the squeaky wheel has gotten that grease. Enjoy the episode. All right, Michael, thanks for joining us here on Making Media. We're going to talk about a lot of different topics today, brand building, marketing, my absolute favorite thing to talk about, which is merch. But given we love to focus on this concept of content to commerce, you have this really interesting story with a continuous lean and really one of the better stories that I've seen of taking something that's content-oriented and really bridging it into a career with an agency and much more than that. So maybe you can bring us back to the early days of launching a continuous lean and how that transitioned into a business that you built around it. Thanks for having me. In every iteration, even when blogs were beloved and new and interesting, it would be difficult to explain what I was doing to anyone but like a very select few people. But I found this very niche world of... I guess I would describe it as like a heritage influenced type of person or someone that likes history and craftsmanship and understanding why things are the way they are and specifically focused on the clothing world and sort of aesthetics. 
over the years, I've never stopped doing it. And it's informed a lot of what I've done through my career and my life. And it really is one of those situations where I couldn't work for big companies. I just knew that right away. And I figured out I have to shape my professional life with my interests and align those things, or I'm just going to be homeless. Otherwise, that was the choice. So I just created this blog within like a month. It was in the New York Times. I was like right on the zeitgeist of what was happening in the menswear clothing space. And it just grew. And I've taken that and I wouldn't say like turned it into an agency, but it informed like a lot of the work I did for clients. And I do marketing work for clothing brands. And I still publish what was a blog now as a newsletter, and it's still called ACL. And it's a very niche thing. It's not like a popular thing. Certain people know it, but I think if you're a certain type of person at a certain age and interested in well-made things, it's a nice place on the internet for that type of person. Yeah. I ended up in New York City in 2008, right exactly the time that it felt like you were in the zeitgeist or in the culture, in a specific part of the culture not in finance culture, which made you all that more valuable to me to know somebody in the underground, overground. I'm curious about the New York Times feature. Did you know someone there? Is there some backstory to getting featured? Because listen, I would love to take that same story. The New York Times thing seems like it leads a nice bump in terms of notoriety. How did that happen? I knew a lot of people that worked at the New York Times before I even did the blog. I was working at a PR agency, but I was really young. By the time I launched the site, I had worked maybe three or four years in this agency. And then very quickly, I thought, this is really simple. I could do this on my own. And I left and was consulting. But I had relationships with decent amount of media that would cover the type of thing I was doing. That was good, but it was also bad because I think they don't ever want to take ideas or get things from PR people. I think automatically you're at a disadvantage if you did PR and it helped me, but also it was challenging. But at the time that I was launching my blog, my good friend was working at the New York Times and helping them launch a style blog that was connected to T Magazine called The Moment. Platforming it, we were talking about WordPress. This was new stuff that was happening at the time. And I was watching that. And that was the inspiration of, I should do this on my own. 25% of what I would publish, I would do because I thought that it could get picked up by the New York Times or by someone else or get a link or get mentioned or get in the paper or whatever it was. I would do some of the things that I was doing that would be more public facing that I knew would be a catalyst to get PR. And that still sort of exists, but it's not the same. Like It's harder now to get organic PR coverage or press coverage. But I had the relationship so I could send a link or send an idea without overcooking it with them and being too dramatic. And it was a little bit easier for me. It was timing, luck, and some relationships. Yeah. I've sent an email to New York Times journalist once. And immediately after I had sent, I said to myself, if I got that email, I'd be like, no, this is the last (laughs) thing I'm going to (laughs) feature. There is something that is very counter to reaching out that can work against you sometimes. But if you find the right moment, find the right people, have the right connectivity, and you're doing stuff at an earlier stage they do crave some of that information. So that makes a ton of sense. How about the next leap where a continuous lean is running and you decide to branch out and create your own agency? How tied to the content itself was that? Were you generating leads or business from continuous lean, which allowed you to 
make that leap and go from big corporation to starting your own thing? I was already doing marketing consulting before the blog or before ACL. So I knew I was going to have a problem marketing myself. You could see the traditional ways that an agency or consultant or anyone would get leads. And part of that was word of mouth and working relationships in the past. And then part of it was this really gross way of marketing. And I thought, well, there's no real angle for me to actually market myself as like a young person starting out trying to get clients. So I thought, well, this is interesting because I could be in the conversation more if I did this. It wasn't like I didn't really know, but it did end up informing a lot of the clients that we worked with. And the brands, like I would go into a meeting and it wouldn't get me the work, but I would go into a meeting and I would have an instant leg up because they understand my taste level and these other intangible things that I have a network. And at a certain point, I had a following. And so they would know that there's some other things there that could be potential positives. They would understand me better. So I wouldn't have to do so much selling of myself or the idea or the service or whatever. I never really wanted to also to have a massive agency. I wanted to have this small thing and sort of everything I've done has been throttled in a way. My agency is pretty small and then my website is pretty small, but it has interesting people there. Boutique. Yeah. That's the great word. (laughs) That's one thing I wanted to talk to you about. When you kind of look through the arc of your career, I've seen you write it somewhere as well. You've been very deliberate about, I just want this to be my business. I don't want this to be a big media business or whatever part of the ecosystem that you operate in. It's always like, I be in control of my own destiny and I'm not dealing with lots of people. I don't want an HR function, all this kind of stuff. Has that been a challenge as you've gone through this? I imagine certain things have gotten bigger than you expected. As you say, throttling back can't feel like an easy thing. What's that tension been like in practice as you've gone through? I mean, I think everything in the world is telling you that's a bad idea. I figured out pretty quickly that... Over X number in terms of income, I'm not going to be that much happier. If I could get to private jet income, then I would be really happy. (laughs) Where I'm at and below to a certain other point is going to be where I'm going to have the most happiness and the least amount of trouble. And so with the company, like I always thought like I would like to have a big agency and feel important, but the more complicated everything got, my site, it just pulls me away from doing the actual thing that I like to do that I felt like I was good at which was writing the site or coming up with the ideas and helping my clients implement them. It wasn't me running an agency where I just run the business and step in if there's a problem and I really don't know what's going on. So I was just trying to avoid that. And I think a lot of people looked at it like it was unambitious, actually. Like I should be trying to make millions of dollars. I have just a lot of people, friends around that have done really, really well. My neighbors, there's crazy rich people like in my neighborhood in LA That's cool, but I don't think I would be any happier if my house was $30 million. I just don't think it would matter. I'd rather have the flexibility than the money. And a lot of people think about that, but it's hard to execute. It took me a long time to figure it out. Yeah, there's something interesting there too, just about the durability of any brand. I love the phrase, trees that grow quickly, rot quickly. And I know you focus a lot on heritage brands, these companies with hundreds of years or 50 plus years of experience, Red Wing, J Press, others that you've worked with. How do you think that a brand that is launching now can actually take some of the lessons from those heritage brands? You can't create heritage without time. But what's the best strategy for brands today with everything that you just mentioned about how it's challenging to really go slowly and 
think about the core values. What type of advice do you give to brands like that? Depending on what phase, where they're at, they're starting out or if they're a five-year-old brand and they want to become a hundred-year-old brand or something, a couple of different things. If you look at even 2020 and the pandemic and what happened and think about a brand from the 1800s, how many of those types of situations they've gone through, the wars, the other pandemics, the massive recessions or whatever, and they've made it through all of those things. To me, and one of the reasons I wrote about companies like that was because I felt like that's really special that even these companies have made it this far. Can we not appreciate the fact that they survived all of these things and are still like viable and real? I looked at manufacturing in the same way. A company like Alden that's making products in the US when everyone else is gone, the whole sector is gone. Companies that make the pieces that service the machines are gone. Everything's gone. It's all in one town in Southern China. And the fact that Alden's still doing it, they had to like build a separate warehouse to hold supplies because they need nine months of supplies on hand in case a supplier goes out of business because they can't find anyone quickly to replace them. They have to do all these extraordinary things. They're expensive shoes. To me, it's like that is priceless stuff. But I think brands need to think about the short term, but also like think about where we're really trying to go and doing something real and thinking about their consumer too. What's lost a lot in modern businesses. One of the reasons why I wanted to do this newsletter was because I read these big men's magazines and they just don't care about the reader. They just are trying to find the business model. I would rather do something really reader-centric where people will see, even if they don't know what affiliate marketing is, how media companies are getting commissions from affiliate or from whatever, how they're doing business. I wanted people to know that you're the priority. And I think a lot of brands, regardless of what you're doing, lose sight of that, where I think if you take care of this hardcore customer, this person that really appreciates your company, your product, and is committed, you can build a business on that, but it might not be really quickly, but figure out where the goals are. I don't know. It's complicated, but I think a lot of companies just don't think about their consumer enough, care enough about their consumer. Yeah. Particularly at scale, that seems to be true. And I guess talking to consumers often termed marketing or like that's the main channel that businesses talk to their consumers through. And generally, we try and be positive on this show, but I want to start with the bad today. What to you is bad marketing? I and mean, like any examples that stick in your mind as companies where you just looked at their marketing strategy or their marketing copy and just thought that's doing a really bad job of serving your customer. And then we can get to the flip side of the good stuff. I'm sure there's a lot. I'm sure there's 10 airline examples here. <laughs> Maybe those companies are thinking like all our customer cares about is price. And it's not about experience. And if you look at Walmart and Target, and they're selling the same things, but with a different point of view on what their customer wants. I have a couple of clothing examples, but I don't want to say because I just think it's, I don't know, maybe I don't know what they're trying to do well enough to call them out. But I'll give you a very specific reference. To me, bad marketing is when you can't tell at all what a brand is, who it's for, what it's about. You couldn't identify anything about its personality, the details of it. That to me is bad marketing. Even if you have a good business, you have a good business. No one cares about your brand. They might like the product, but they don't want to tell anyone. They don't even know, what's that shirt? Well, I don't even know. Like, Let me look. Or they do know. And that's a missed opportunity, especially if you have a good business, a solid business. Why not stand for something? 
that leads right into the brands that do really well with marketing. And that's a brand like Patagonia. You know exactly what they stand for. Sustainability and being like a leader in that space. There's no question about what it is. And everyone always cites them as an example. And I don't think they're the best example for every marketing thing, but it's very obvious what they're all about. Do you think the difference is companies that don't stand for anything are trying to not upset anyone? Whereas Patagonia, for example, when they was first coming out with their business, talking about sustainability, like frankly, no one really cared about sustainability, but they were very much beating that drum and built their whole business around it. And similarly, when you think of other strong brands out there, they're probably pissing people off in the country somewhere. Some part of the population is unhappy with what they're doing, whereas other brands that kind of dilute their thinking to such an extent that they try and please everyone, but then no one really knows what they're standing for. A very roundabout way of asking, like, what delineates the people that do this really well from the people that don't do it very well? What are the barriers to overcome? I mean, I think not every company wants to be a good marketing company, first of all. And some just don't care. And some say, like, we want to be operationally the best company on earth. There's a lot of economic factors, I think, that lead into being a good marketing company. And maybe it's just not feasible in the business model. Look at UPS versus FedEx. FedEx Ground is like a franchisee almost. And then if you look at UPS, everyone at UPS is employee of the company, right? Union employee. Yeah, union employee. And it's very strict. Their uniform standards, the appearance standards, just all of that stuff. And if you actually stop in New York City and look around at UPS drivers and FedEx Ground drivers and how they operate, you could tell there's like a difference. If you interact with these people, like there's a difference. There's a certain standard that UPS has, and it's nothing against FedEx ground, but there's a certain standard that UPS operates with from every perspective. And you can feel the difference in the business when you use it. You experience the difference. I trust UPS ground more than other services. Yeah. That was not a planted answer either. I'm a massive UPS fan. I usually use Amazon as the counter example, but it is 100% true and you can rely on them for much more. If you look at Amazon, when they first started licensing or whatever, franchising the delivery, the final mile stuff, you could see they would just have sprinter vans with no logos. They rolled it out before they even had it all together, which in one sense, I'm like, that's really messy and gross. And in another sense, I'm like, it's pretty amazing that they would just do it. I feel like that's more of their company culture is we're just going to execute and then we'll figure it out. We'll make it look better later. Going back to the like marketing question, I don't think certain brands care about marketing and it's not their priority. I think the difference is if you want to be like the best of the best, you really have to care about every single detail. If you just are content with being 80%, then you probably don't. Do you think Patagonia cared about marketing? I think that they cared about their beliefs. We stand for what we stand for. And if it pisses people off or they don't like it, or we're going to get negative press for it, then so be it. We don't care. The opposite is true for a lot of businesses. A lot of businesses are in this Japanese middle management zone. You have a certain number of points. There's no way to earn points. You can only lose them. And like that's how they operate. That's most brands. And I think Patagonia was like, we don't care. We're just going to do what we do. And if people like it, they'll get it. And I think they're really smart about marketing. They're really savvy, but they also have the guts to like go out and do it, back that up, which I think that's the rare combo. It's understanding the marketing playing field, but also being willing to take a chance, do something that could potentially be bad. Their intentions are good. It's not like the intentions are like to get the stockholders more dividends. The intentions were like, do as little harm as possible, build this altruistic organization. 
I did a little bit of work for Patagonia. I don't now. You would go to their office in Ventura and they had daycare there. It was like a cool place. They backed up all the stuff I think that they said. It's a shame that the finance braze took over their gilets and ruined the perception to some degree. I figured that would come up when we would speak to the finance vest. I don't know whether that previous comment was a dig at BlackRock and their commitment to climate change because it feels just as authentic as Patagonia's. Besides Patagonia, do you think there's another brand and maybe I know you reference UPS, but another brand where you think they offer an interesting case study to maybe look at from values or marketing slash lack thereof, which has proven to be valuable and stand the test of time? Yeah. I mean, it's timely too. And it was something in the show notes for this, but the Masters is probably like the best brand case study like of all time. I don't think it's out there in a big way and people consider it as something that they would study in that way. But the Masters is one of the best executed things, not sporting events, things on the planet. If the board at the Masters that runs the tournament could just take over the TSA, we'd be through in five minutes and with a smile on our face. Can you just talk us through a few of those points for someone that hasn't been to the Masters? I'm a golf nut. I know a lot of the details, but there's some fascinating things there about even what they call the patrons. Can you just run through your top five or 10 favorite notes of detail? If you look at the television broadcast, they have a unique arrangement with CBS where they don't run the normal amount of commercials in the broadcast. Sponsored by Rolex as well. Yeah, I mean, Rolex. Rolex is an amazing brand case study that we could talk about. Rolex, IBM, Mercedes-Benz, there's three or four or five companies. UPS is a sponsor, the Masters, somehow, or they're in some way connected. They have like a very small number of sponsors and the sponsors are like the premier businesses. Those businesses are also trying to sort of do the same thing the Masters is doing in terms of general marketing and image and commitment to excellence. But the Masters has this really interesting program of continuous improvement where they're always trying to make everything better, the experience better. And they really do care about the patron experience, which they call the fans. Especially true if you watch the broadcast and you watch other broadcasts, or if you go there to the event, or if you've been to other events. When you go to the Masters, they give you this patron's guide that Bobby Jones, the founder of the club and the tournament had written And it basically goes through like where the best places are to sit and watch the golf, where all the amenities, like anything you need, the history of a lot of the names. There's so much information. It's just this beautiful, very well-written guide. They just give it out when you go there and it explains everything. There's maps and it's just the full experience is laid out right there in that book. And it's kind of like, this is a dumb thing and something that's easy to gloss over. But if you go to other tournaments, you have no idea what's going on. You can't follow it. You don't know the history of anything. You don't know who's playing when and all this stuff. So in that sense, they just really are committed to the details and the experience. And then beyond that, every other thing they're committed to as well, like the aesthetics of everything, the shape of the scoreboards. There's no digital displays out there. There's no phones at the tournament. They have banks of landlines. If you lose someone, you better have a plan. And if you don't, good luck. You can't even express how much not having a phone makes the experience better. Like no one being on their phone, no one trying to video everything. The way that the credentials are done, trackable in a way. And I think if people act out, whoever's the holder of the credential couldn't lose them, which would be a devastating thing, obviously. So everyone's like on their best behavior. Everyone's very nice. 
from start to finish, the whole experience is totally world-class, very, very, very thought through. And going back to the broadcast and the partners, everyone there is on like a one-year deal. CBS has been on a one-year deal with the Masters for 40 years or something, 50 years. I don't know what the exact number is, but everyone gets renewed every year. They have the ultimate flexibility to like get rid of, move on, adapt, bring in someone better. That's just always there. And I don't know that CBS is even making money on broadcasting the tournament, but it's such a prestigious thing for them. They do it. I could talk for an hour. Even if you don't like golf, it's just the most amazing choreographed thing. Makes Disneyland seem like the Motel 6. It feels like Disneyland to me. Yeah. There's a few incredible interviews with Jim Nance, and it's so interesting to hear how he thinks about his career. He wants to wrap up his career at the Masters. He's done all of these other incredible events in football and the Final Four. And it's like, no, the Masters is the crown jewel for him. And he feels so attached to it. Everything about it just feels different in a luxurious way. Even their preview commercials where it's like, it's not this loud, energetic music. It's just birds chirping and green grass. And it's like, oh, spring is here. We've done business breakdowns, Rolex with Ben Clymer from Hodinkee. He did an excellent job. We just had one on Disney, but the masters warrant a little bit more of a study. I think you're right there. Good opportunity to transition to the merch conversation. So corporate merch is a topic that I get a lot of pushback on or a lot of distaste. Colossus famously does not have any swag or merch. For those that don't know, Michael and I exchanged emails about a keychain months and months ago that I tried to have created. That ultimately failed because I couldn't get it right. So I have a very, very tough relationship with the idea of Morch. Maybe you could just give me some broader strategic thoughts to start out the conversation. When did corporate merch become a thing? And what's the point of corporate merch? I'm not sure exactly when it became a thing. If I could guess, I would think it's probably like an offshoot of some members club, some private club. And a lot of private clubs have had merch. Like the Masters, I guess. Well, the Masters has a tournament. They have merch. And the merch, that alone is like a chapter in this case study that you're going to do because it's not available at all online. You have to buy it in person at the tournament. It's like the size of a Walmart, basically. Just everyone in there carrying arms full of massive amounts of stuff. And the average purchase or order volume or whatever there is probably like $1,500 or something. You can ship it there, but you had to buy it on eBay or whatever. So they have like a crazy merch program. It's insane. I think the corporate merch thing probably came out of a private club. All this stuff is showing affiliation and appreciation, flexing on people that you've been there or that you've earned some fancy degree or that you work at a prestigious place. And I think a lot of people want that affiliation just in general, even if it's not about any of those things. Even if you love a museum, you want to buy something and represent that to your family and friends and whatever. And I think that's the genesis of merch. It's all really pretty pedestrian, like normal product that's really being bought for like the logo or the affiliation, that cosign of that. Really fascinating. And the one thing that I think everyone probably knows about, but maybe you weren't thinking about was the banker bag. I didn't grow up in New York. I never experienced that probably until I was 20. And saw those things. But then I realized you're on the train or wherever at the gym, you see all these different versions of the same thing. And you're like, what is this? That was always really, really fascinating. And I ended up finding that company. It's called Warden Brooks that makes all of those bags. They're in Connecticut. And this one woman owns it. 
fascinating. And they have every prestigious, probably big law firm and big accounting company and insurance company and big bank and private equity and all that stuff. It's amazing. And like you see them all over. It's just this little ribbon webbing with the little logo. It's not obvious, but it's so obvious. And it's amazing. That to me is the best. It's just like a briefcase with law firm or finance firms logo on. Canvas duffel bags. Uh, okay. Like a gym bag. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's even better. All these finance people saying, yeah, I go to the gym, but most of the time I'm behind my desk. It feels like the canvas tote, preppy, waspy thing. I was in San Jose like a month ago or three weeks ago, and I was just looking at tech backpacks and clothes, and you see the tech logo on everything, and everyone has their company logo on their bag or whatever. So alien to me. I would just never do this. I've never worked at a company. I would never get a job at a big company. It is alien for me, but I find it interesting. It's tribal and it's funny. So much more there than just, I got a free backpack. Well, it's also like amusing that people are trying to stand out from the crowd by doing the exact same thing as everyone else in their crowd. Just one big crowd rising up, which makes me also think about, do the normal rules of consumer goods apply in this arena? Does style or quality matter? Because it seems like it doesn't really matter about the product. It just has to signify something and has to have your badge on and you're good. If we're thinking about doing merch, does quality matter? Does style matter? Like, do any of those things that you'd normally associate with a consumer good or clothing actually matter? I think some of it matters. There is a way to be a little bit more unique by doing something better. Yeti. Yeti Tumblr. Who doesn't want that? Even better with a good logo from something you do like. I like actually have this tier of subscriber on my newsletter that's the top tier and they're paying more than they should. And I send them a Yeti Tumblr every year as like, thank you. Everyone likes it. And it's the dumbest thing. And I use one every day, but I think it matters a little bit. I think if it's a Patagonia bag or not something cheap, the companies don't necessarily want cheap things. They want a water bottle people know or whatever. There's a lot of stuff that's just cheap, simple stuff, which I will buy myself. And I really care about how things are made and artisanal goods and all this stuff. But I'll buy the cheap hat from whatever with the logo because I'm just degenerate and I just can't help myself. You show support. I yeah, forgot to put on my hat for this segment. My special edition 2008 Lehman Brothers hat from my great internship <laughs> there, the heart of the financial crisis. Yeah, if anybody wants this, open bidding. It's really never been worn. There were like people on TikTok making this Silicon Valley Bank risk assessment intern t-shirt. That's a little soon for that, but the Lehman Brothers thing, it's pretty good. Lehman Brothers feels like it's finally coming into play now. 15 years later, it could be pulled off. I want to go through a few examples with you and decide what makes these iconic pieces of merch. And whether you have an answer or not, just feel free to share whatever opinion you have. The first that we're going to kick off with is the Domino's Rolex. Which have gone up insane amounts in terms of price in the last 10 years. I think these are retirement gifts. I was thinking about this actually the other day in, in preparation for this and the little preparation that I did because I'm not the type of person to prepare for things. There's a generation that doesn't even know what a gold Rolex means, that it was a retirement thing. And the Domino's Rolex, where they put the Domino's Rolex on the face of a Rolex is just one of the greatest and like most absurd things of all time. I think that was officially done with Rolex, but Rolex would never do that now, I would assume. 
Well, you say that, but yesterday they came out with an emoji watch, which I think has sent most of the watch world into a tailspin. It is nuts. I was looking earlier, I was trying to buy one. £8,000 was the price. For the emoji watch? No, for the Domino's watch. Could you really wear that? I know they did it with a lot of oil companies as well. It was the 80s heyday of oil field services and same type of thing, salesman gift. You hit a million dollars, you get this branded Rolex. And from what I understand, they do very, very, very limited collaborations like that. I think if you're like a Saudi prince, then you can get some stuff. I mean, Tiffany probably still does some of that. You see other branded Rolexes that don't have the cachet or sort of aftermarket value that the Domino's one. I think it's just so kitschy that I was half considering buying one at a certain point because I just think they're so funny. Everyone would ask you about it. I mean, if you wore it, everyone would just talk to you about it. So I guess if you're the type of person that wants to talk about it, it would be pretty funny. That's a good point. Good reasoning. How about the New Yorker tote? I mean, I think the New Yorker tote is pretty iconic. That subscriber gift thing generally is, you know, I think the New Yorker, a lot of it was pretty New York-y. And I think the tote thing in New York is just such an important vehicle, everyday object, even before plastic shopping bags were gone. So I think that they just found this thing that they could deal with. They probably didn't want to do something trashier than that. And so they thought, well, this makes sense. But yeah, the New Yorker tote is just perfect little subscriber gift. The promo tote in general is hard to mess up. You guys could even do that. You guys need a merch czar like no laying up. We do. We tried to put Matt in that position, but he's failed miserably. So we need to find a new person. (laughs) I want to be different. That's all. The last example I have is my wife saw this guy walking around our town with this hat that said Ballroom Marfa. And she's like, what is that hat? Is that guy loaded? Who is he? And it's this distinctive hat. And sure enough, I Google it. And Jay-Z wears the hat too, which also raises questions. And it's this random place. I think it's in New Mexico, art gallery of some sort, nonprofit. How do we get our hat on Jay-Z's head? Do you have any type of idea of how we can collaborate with that? Because I'll tell you what, I would have never known Ballroom Marfa unless I saw this hat. And it seems like there's some good connectivity here. So any insights on how we can get the celeb partnerships going too? Yeah, maybe pivot to charity would be a good place. (laughs) That seems like Uh, an important detail, right? Yeah. You could donate seven figures to one of Jay-Z's charities. That might help. You can hire a stylist, (laughs) (laughs) create a brand. I don't know. Maybe be more ironic. Yeah. I think you tapped into it with the charity point there, the nonprofit point. (laughs) That was probably where it starts and ends. You failed at the first hurdle. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right, I want to roll this stuff up into your experience setting up your merch shop recently, ACL Golf. So you set up from a golf offshoot of ACL, as far as I can tell, and then you just launched a store. So can you like walk us through the process of thinking about the store, what products you wanted in there, collaborating with brands that you were particularly keen on, and even the platform that you use, I think you're on Shopify. Really just walk us through the process and how you're thinking about it so we can learn as much as we can for when we hire a new merch seller. I'm very much running a fly-by-night merge operation on my own. And I'm lucky that I'm aligning with some people that will actually want to wear this stuff as well. But I have a couple reasons for starting the golf thing. It's not traditional golf clothes or anything. It's more of things you could wear to play golf if that's what you do. Good, generally good clothes otherwise. I would go out and get dressed and go play golf. And my wife would say, are you going to play golf? And she could just tell that I was going to go play golf. And so I thought, I need to be more subtle in my approach to this. And 
my wife doesn't care that I play golf, but I didn't like getting caught that I was going to be playing golf and not be working or whatever. Why can't I just play golf in my regular clothes was the question. Actually, I have this logo that's a little green and a flag with ACL on it that my friend made randomly for my 40th birthday. My wife had them made like into totes for like the people that came. We went on a trip for my 40th. Everyone got one of these bags. And then I liked the logo and I was like, I'm going to make that my golf logo. And I found my five favorite brands and approached them like Holderness and Born, my favorite golf brand. Can we do some stuff? And golf is one of those things where it's like everyone's set up to make small batches because they're dealing with all these green grass country club accounts where they'll make 12 pieces with their logo. It's like no big deal. They do it all the time. Everyone's got a million logo treatments and embroidery options and all that stuff. So it's really easy. Send me your logo. Let's do 12 shirts. Let's make hats. It's really simple. So I was thinking, find the brands that I really like. Half of it is just stuff I wanted to buy but couldn't find from other places like these Shetland sweaters that I used to buy from the store, they stopped selling them. So I'm like, I'm just going to figure out like who made them and go make my own and do them. And I made 12 colors of this great Shetland and sold them all winter. And I'm wearing them. My whole family's wearing them. It's like that scene from Goodfellas where like they get the box of sweaters and like everyone's wearing them. That was my house. And I just wanted to make good things, like find companies that I really thought are interesting and do things the old way. Do this menswear, classic men's style like golf shop in a way that's not Melbourne, not streetwear nothing against any of that, but that's not my vibe. I'm not a member of a club. Don't want to try to flex like I'm some member at a fancy club that I'm not. And so I was like, this logo's in between all of that. And like, it's not me or anyone representing that they're anything other than like a fan of something. And so that was the thought process. And it's been interesting. Like I haven't lost money on it, which is a miracle, a modern miracle. (laughs) Are you taking the inventory? Are they shipping to you and then you're shipping out as you get orders through? Yeah. A lot of it's I'm shipping. I have my garage full of stuff. It's pretty funny. And I really enjoy the process of doing it. And I certainly could not make a living doing this at the scale that it's going now, but it's a really fun diversion for me. And maybe it'll grow into something. And I can tell you the story of how it's platformed and everything, which is funny. I built this really interesting like headless editorial site. So a decentralized editorial site that could easily insert e-commerce into editorial. So I'm like writing about golf and this is ACL golf, writing about things I find interesting in golf. I went to Pinehurst and had a miserable time and I like wrote about it. Mostly because of my own expectations. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to feel sympathetic for you. <laughs> August, it was really hot. I was terrible. <laughs> half of golf is like thinking about it and expecting to do well. And then the other half is getting your soul crushed. <laughs> it's like many other things in life. But people might not like golf and I don't blame them. It's fine. It's ridiculous. I was like, I'm going to build this headless, very complex site, get these developers It took forever, but it was fine because I was like doing it in their off time and whatever. And they were like doing me a huge solid and like helping me build this interesting thing. And I'm like, plug in Shopify to this headless site and it's going to be really complicated and interesting. We'll be able to like do editorial e-commerce in such an interesting way. We built the editorial piece and then we built the Shopify. And then when it came time to like plug them together and I was trying to launch this thing last holiday and the developers are like, we just can't get it to work together. It's going to take 60 hours of development to like get it to someplace we think could work. I'm going to miss my whole window 
for the holidays and everything. So I was like, oh, screw it. I'm just going to set up Shopify and do it myself. Everything went fine and I sold a bunch of stuff. I'm like, this was so dumb. I'm totally figuring it out as I go. It didn't even matter. People don't care. I learned a lot in that experience. The e-commerce experience is not really important to a lot of people. Yeah, you got to run downhill where you can make your life easy. Yeah, I'm still quite embarrassed though that you're running that operation out of your garage. I can barely send the limited edition things that we do have to our small team. So uh, you're putting me to <laughs> shame. And your wife developing totes for your 40th birthday party. I'm really catching strays here without planning on it. <laughs> I have a pretty sophisticated personal 3PL in my garage that I enjoy doing in my off hours. So if you want any tips, I'm happy to help. Yeah, I might have to follow up with you on that. I'm such a geek about UPS and some of the various systems too. I should be better at doing it on my own. I wanted to talk a little bit about brand partnerships. And this could be a whole conversation. You tapped into a little bit there. And I think it's really interesting to hear about the small batches because that's one thing that's annoying to me is you have very little ability to test out any of this stuff and see if it's a good product. And you might know the brand and whatnot, but it gets a little bit tricky. When you go about approaching some of these brands where you're using not who you would see in a typical swag shop from one of these off-the-shelf vendors. How does that come to be? Like, Are they working with you generally because of your content and they're familiar with you? Do you find that fairly easily to develop brand partnerships? Is there anything unique or interesting about those experiences? I think brands want to do interesting things. Even if you don't know them, you don't have a history of doing anything in the space, you had an idea... You're maybe opening up a new channel for them. I think that is interesting to a lot of brands. And like small brands are really flexible. You can quickly talk to a decision maker. They're open to do things, can be flexible and work with you on quantities. Anything can be done. It's just a matter of money. In the merch conversation, one of the brands I wanted to talk about, and I don't really know them all that well, but I follow them, is this company called Knickerbocker. And they did like a collab with Kodak that was really cool and really thoughtfully done. And the Kodak logo is at this point very reminiscent and nostalgic. And so I think they sort of played on that and made some like really thoughtful pieces around that. They make merch for the New York Times. That's actually good stuff. Someone at the New York Times was like, let's do an elevated merch thing. If you actually look at the merch section of the New York Times, they have crazy stuff. You could buy thousand piece puzzle from like any front page of any newspaper, like for your birthday year. There's like a million things that you could do. Simple things, elaborate things, hat or whatever. Understanding what the company is all about and like finding alignment that makes sense would be a good place to start. But a lot of brands want to do interesting things. So you might as well ask and try. Yeah. I think we often forget that when we talk about brands or businesses, they're effectively just people. And people find things interesting like we do, particularly whether there are other interesting brands or people that they want to work with out there. If you go to someone, Tiffany, and say, hey, would you want to do a collab with this person? Then like, obviously the person out, Tiffany, is probably going to be excited about that. And that's generally how these things come to be. It makes a lot of sense. You could ask a company and say, like, do you do these types of things? Like, What are the things you do? Most companies are probably like, oh yeah, for the Yale Business School, we make these portfolios every year or something. There's a million of these things happening in the background that you just don't see and don't know about because it's not on their Instagram and they don't sell it. But a lot of stuff is being made. And you could say like, what are the things have you done? Do you have that we could do? And they probably will show you crazy stuff that you're like, oh, this is interesting. Yeah. For a small business like us, where merch is not our core competency or anywhere near it as Matt's displayed, 
Is it worth us trying to spin up a merch shop? Obviously, we have a loyal and reasonably large slash small audience. Is it worth doing a merch shop? I can't imagine it's going to be a money spinner, but obviously it has lots of other benefits to it as well as people just like to get stuff from brands that they enjoy. So tossing up in my mind. I think it would be worth doing, especially if there's inside things that you guys talk about that listeners or readers will know about or the followers. I don't know if you follow that newsletter. Why is this interesting? At some point, they did something with Mickey Drexler, who was the CEO of The Gap and J. Crew and whatever, because he was on the board of Apple and they made a Mickey Drexler hat. It just says Mickey Drexler. It's like on my Instagram. It's weird, but I love Mickey's. One of the greatest guys is the Apple font with Mickey Drexler on it. Doing that or doing something with the logo on it or building in a tier where people get it as a gift, I think is fun. People love merch. We were at the Natural History Museum in LA here this weekend. Five gift shops. Crazy. There's so much merch. It's great. Every restaurant now, every good place has merch. Not every good place. <laughs> Not yeah. every good place. <laughs> Millions of downloads a month. No merch shop. Everything we do is going to be limited edition, except for a few things. Yeah, we'll make it. Send in your listening history, proof that you've listened to every episode, and we'll send you XYZ free Yeti Tumblr. You brought up Mickey Drexler, and I always find it interesting that he curated these people within his business at a specific time where Todd Snyder, Jenna Lyons at the same time. Do you think that you're born with taste or do you think that's something that you develop over time? It's probably something you're born with or just have a natural interest in it. I think if you look at Mickey, I always think of Mickey as just a product person. Mickey is really open to ideas and he really wants to hear what people think. It's interesting. Anytime I ever mention Mickey in a newsletter, he'll call me that day just out of the blue, just calls me. He's like, hey, it's Mickey Drexler. He's like, you wrote about this thing. What do you think about this? And I'm like, Mickey, am I on speakerphone? He's like, yeah, yeah, I'm here in the design meeting with everyone. And I'm like, oh my God, I can't be on this call, but he's really interested in the details. And so he knows what makes a good fit and what product's good and the fabric and what product's relevant and what's not. And I think he probably wasn't born with that, but he was born with the curiosity to get to that point. I think people's taste is shaped by the other people around them, but sometimes it's just inherent in you. My parents have no understanding of what I do. They get it, but they don't really know and they don't care. They're like, we don't really care about clothes. Not important to us. And if I tried to tell my dad about Alden loafers, he'd be sleeping. I didn't get it from them, but I got it somewhere. It's a curiosity in people really is where it comes from. You mentioned Apple. Something I was thinking about before this conversation. Apple is a brand that evokes so many different emotions in people. And so many people have bought an Apple product in their life. And they obviously are very good at design. It strikes me that if they opened a merch shop, they would sell things, whatever it might be, by the boatload. They used to, I don't know if they still do, used to ship the stickers in the boxes for when you bought a product. I don't know whether they still do that. Why would... Apple, in your mind, why would they not have a merch shop where you could go and buy a hat or something else? It feels like something that they might do, but also interest in your views. I think they had a merch shop at the old headquarters that you could only get the stuff there and that was it. But I've never really seen it. If you looked on eBay, there's a lot of Apple stuff floating around. Maybe they don't do it because it's a distraction from or like cheapens like what they do as a core brand or something. That's Matt's excuse as well. <laughs> I'll be selling them out of my trunk like Kevin from Under Armour. Once you build like a giant spaceship sized world headquarters, then you can open your merch shop. Uh, yeah. 
We're in good company with Apple, I think. <laughs> Augusta National, they have a member's pro shop that's not the tournament pro shop or not the tournament shop. And so there's different logo merch there. Like all those things, like if you can only get it at Apple, I've always just been fascinated by that and super into the merch, especially the stuff that you can only get if you know where you can get it, that signals to everyone. Do you think the best merch programs are limited supply? We set one up on our website and there was either, like you said, you had to listen to these number of episodes or certain episodes, or there was just not enough supply for the demand that we had, which kind of creates this buzz around the brand and the product, as you say. I think if it was like a small thing that was too compelling, things came together to create a finite amount is kind of interesting. I don't know what you're saying kind of reminds me of the million miler swag that Delta sends you. That's just crap that you don't want. It's like a nice gesture, but you're like, I don't want this. Yeah. Well, this goes back to your earlier point. Like execution does matter to some extent. You can't just sell rubbish with the logo on or come from a brand that you don't care about. Yeah. I mean, I think it matters to some people and then some people don't care. United used to send these. If you make 1K, they would send you like this little neoprene luggage tag or something wrap around the handle of your bag so you know it. And I was like, this is the cheapest thing I've ever seen. Like, I wish I just wouldn't have gotten it. Then you go to the airport and you see a million people with them on their bag. And you're like, I guess it works. Just you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe it's just me. Oh man. Well, I don't want to be in the same category as Delta. I'll try to use some of those other brands in the future. And I promise to the listeners that there is a merch shop coming. It's in the works. It's on the way. Michael, thank you for your time. A lot of good insights, lessons, stories. This was a lot of fun. Appreciate you joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Gonna get us some merch now? (laughs) Well, before we get to that, I found that episode very, very useful personally. Whether listeners will find it useful, we'll find out. But there were a lot of really good tidbits for me. What about you? Well, let's go through that because I think you're the one that needed education. And I'm pleased that you set this up. So (laughs) what did you find useful? Because I'm interested to hear your learnings. Well, one, it's the brand that matters. So yes, people will buy lower quality things, things that I might view as just, eh, if I get it from a certain brand, I'm going to throw it away, going to deteriorate the environment, going to throw it in the garbage, despite the kindful gesture. If your brand is good, people will actually look for shitty, crappy quality, and and that's fine with them and they'll wear it. So I think that was lesson number one. You need to have an off-the-shelf thing, which is in the works. We have those mocks. You've seen them. There is stuff in inventory. It's coming. The second thing is there's... I don't want to hear your opinions yet. I didn't ask you for your questions. (laughs) Don't jump in here. The second point is that there's some interesting stuff out there. The New York Times, I'm going to browse through their website. A lot of creative ideas. I think that his point on finding Warden Brooks, the maker of the banker bags, which are quite infamous, those would be a kitschy, ironic thing for us to do. Very interesting. And then there was some other interesting stuff. The fact that the golf industry creates small batches. One of the insanely annoying things is that you have to pay $900 for a batch of hats using all these different vendors and you get a handful of hats. And it's kind of annoying because... While other people just like to spend money to spend money, I like to think about capital allocation and having a brand that will last 100 years and I can waste your money on shitty merch or I can spend it wisely and get reasonable merch that will at least pay for itself. I'm not trying to make money on this. So those were my general thoughts. You are now allowed to speak, Tom. 
<laughs> wow, the floor is open again. That was quite something. Well, look, I'm pleased that you're pleased and that you learn a lot. I can feel you really developing a new friendship of this role that you've taken on as merch czar. I think all of your takeaways were right. And I thought that conversation as well was particularly interesting. I do think his point, like you said, the brand matters and people want it. So you kind of take yourself out of the equation and give the fans what they want. But I wholeheartedly agree with you. And maybe this is conceding some ground here with is not a priority. And I would love to do an inventory of people's merch shops and see like whether it makes them any money, how much of a distraction it is to their business. Because I imagine it generally is not a profitable enterprise for most people and it takes up a lot of their time doing it. And I think so you have to be really thoughtful about that stuff. Like what are you actually trying to do in this business? And most of the time it's not sell hats or any other goods. It's not supposed to make money, Dom. It's marketing. And it doesn't have to take, Dom. You can outsource it to a vendor and you can get shitty quality that people will largely throw away unless you do something interesting with it. So you could be like every other brand out there. That's cool. Just have fun fitting in with the rest of them. Or you could do unique stuff. I like the idea of the banker bags. Colossus banker bags. Now we know the manufacturer, Warden Brooks. Yeah, that's step one. Yeah. Honestly, there were a few things that caught my ear. The partnership thing. I have reached out to brands before about partnerships, interesting brands. So I think that made a lot of sense. Now, he's got a pretty damn big leg up on us, given that he does focus on apparel for his content. I was trying to think of good finance brands. The Banker Bag is the version, the Patagonia Best, there's Yeti, which all have some association with finance, but really they're just like association with all the different East Coast. We can't do anything with Yeti. Yeti is everywhere. Everyone's doing something with Yeti. I don't want to do anything with Yeti. I'm putting my foot down. Well, fun fact, I'm actually more of a Coleman cooler guy and Stanley thermos guy. Of course you are. <laughs> now, I will accept that if you need to keep your fish cold for 30 straight days, your Yeti cooler is going to beat my Coleman cooler, which can only keep that fish cold for 14 straight days. So if you're into that, but judging by most of the people that I see rocking their Yeti stuff, I don't know if they really need all of the insulation that it provides for their drinks. Eric Golden, big Yeti guy. So I know I'm <laughs> yeah. coming at him with that commentary. We could use golf shops. I think there's probably a pretty big crossover in our audience between golf and Colossus fans. They're in small batches. Here was another observation from the podcast. The way that your eyes and tone lit up when he brought up the masters. I want to see when we go into the audio settings. Our audio editing functions have these different pitch mechanisms that I've never had any reason to use before. I want to get the pitch of your voice when he brought up the masters because you were just like a giddy little kid that we need to use video just for that alone because you were so excited to talk about it. I actually left the conversation for 20 minutes and came back and you were still geeking out over all the golf stuff. So that was impressive. Now, I do think in fairness, you're probably right there. There probably is an overlap. So maybe we have some golf gear. I'll let you lead the charge on that. It'll probably beat me to the market in terms of whatever I'm developing. So there you go. I was not expecting to talk about the Masters in that conversation, but I'll happily talk Masters with anyone anytime. But it's next week. I was already excited. And when he brought it up, that was my time to go. Unleash me into the conversation. And as you say, I didn't hold back. And nor should I. No, nor should you. Yeah, they do an excellent job in his coverage. I think it was last year or two years ago, he got the press pass. So he got to take pictures and you're famously not allowed to bring cameras into the Masters. So he tells a funny story about how everybody made sure to tell him that he wasn't allowed to have a camera and take pictures. And he was like, oh, no, I have a press pass. And then they would ask him to take a picture of them. <laughs> it just seems you do feel like you're like lost in time or stuck in time with that event. 
But I think it brings up a really good point about brand and merch generally. The Masters does, as he said, a ton of things really well. The fact that they call their fans patrons has always annoyed me to an extent. And they're like a few of the other things they do. The no phones policy is incredible, but they also have a checkered history in terms of some other things. But strong brands generally piss a lot of people off. And I think as a business builder, the easy thing to do is always to try and please everyone. But you really do need to narrow down on what you are and what you stand for and like what values you hold dearly. And those kind of shine through as a brand. I thought we workshopped that night nicely with him. We were talking about good brands actually care about marketing. And you asked about Patagonia, which I thought was a good question. And he was like, I don't think they do care about marketing. And that made me think. If you think about some of the like Patagonia and Rolex came to mind, they focus on the things that they really care about. So for Rolex, it's about precision and quality engineering. That becomes their brand because they do those things and that's everything that they do. <laughs> You're looking at me like, yeah, like I'm wrong. No. Do you think they have a YouTube channel? Do you think they have a merch shop? Do you think they have those things or do they just focus <laughs> on what they do well for their core audience? And then that becomes their brand. Yes, that is your point. The bigger picture. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was making people believe that the merch shop was ever going to come. So that's what we need to focus on. It is our brand. That's the thing. We talk about this, but we're doing it. I think that's the point. I play dumb with some of this stuff, but it's exactly what we're doing. That's the entertainment thing is playing dumb. The reality is we're making great fucking conversations with great investors, great builders. Think about this week. You had Senra talking LVMH with a book that's insanely hard to find, following up his week with Charlie Munger. Then you have David Einhorn, Jim Chanos. Then we have the head of HBR after we did an episode on him. That's last week now. We're recording this the week of all this is coming out. That's where all of our focus should be. Those are great definitive conversations. I couldn't agree more, to be fair. Maybe this is where I'll settle. The merch that we should be producing is for guests. Because I think that really whips everyone else into a frenzy. If we give our guests a certain type of hat or a pin or something that only guests can get, and they start publicizing that, oh, I got my Colossus hat. Oh, well, why did you get that? Oh, I went on making media. And then the rest of the crowd, like, how do I get a piece of this pie? Well, spoiler alert, you can't. You can only get it if you've been a guest. That's the right thing. Maybe that's the strategy. Yes, it is the strategy. And that helps you because limited production. Yes. And I know you're struggling in this area. No, no, no. Trust me. There's a very specific type of ads. The pins will act as decals. Will people wear them? They don't necessarily have to because they can be shown off as somewhat of a trophy. But it's not the type of trophy or metal that you throw in the garbage. It's small. It's subtle. It could be used. And you can think about where that can go. There's a lot of unique things. Pins are actually making a comeback. You heard it here first. Colossus is going to be the first designer of them. But you need to appear on the shows. That's the thing. Going back to something at the beginning of the conversation... When he was mentioning about, and I really, really admire this. He knows that he'll be happier as a small operation, running his own business, doing his own thing, constraining himself. I have that huge admiration for that. It made me think about a conversation Patrick had some years ago with Daniel Eck, the founder of Spotify. And I'll never forget this. I'm going to butcher some of the details, but it's directionally accurate. Daniel, I think, was saying he was in Dubai talking to an ice cream shop owner. And he was grilling the shop owner about all these different things, how many customers he had coming into the shop what his margin profile was, how he was growing the store, how he's going to get his next thousand customers through, whether he could squeeze his suppliers on the ice creams, all of this stuff. And then I think like well into the conversation, the ice cream guy turned around and he was like, in a very polite manner, look, one thing you haven't budgeted for in this conversation is I don't want to grow my store. 
I'm perfectly happy running it as I am doing what I do. I don't want more people coming. I don't want to make this into a huge national franchise. I just want to do what I do. Daniel talked about it and he was like, it really like just smacked me in the face. Being like, oh yeah, that's perfectly fine. And I just think about things in a different way. I think those brands, honestly, those places, those stores can actually be way more valuable too. If you told me that there's more growth opportunity from staying small for longer purposefully, I could actually believe it. The tree that grows quickly, rots quickly, like there's something to it. That's a piece of the businessman and the fisherman fable, which I think, what do you get excited about? But think about Michael, the opportunities that he's had. He gets a press pass to the masters. He stayed small, but there's a lot of people talk about how they don't get press passes to the masters. Like the reason why Kevin left ESPN for no laying up was because he couldn't go to the masters. Little things like that, I think, prove out the value of staying within your niche, not overexpanding for the sake of overexpanding. And he embodies that. And he gets really interesting stuff that is constantly different. I'm often looking for people that are like outside of our sphere, Twitter or anything else. I learn a ton from that group, but then I also like tapping into other nodes in the network. Yeah. He's one of them who's proven really valuable for me. Yeah. I mean, listen to any episode of Founders with David Senra and he'll tell you that survival is the first rule in business. If you can't survive, the rest of it is inconsequential. And often surviving is about reducing all the frictions and things that you don't want to do. So it's a lot of wiseness to it. Amen. Just before we finish, I need to tell everyone that it's been a burden on me, this whole recording is looking at Matt in Zoom with his layman brothers. Hound. I'm glad to see the end of that when this finishes. Yeah, this one's going back on the shelf. I never actually wear it, but it seems like a good thing to own. Nice piece of merchandise. If anybody wants to buy it, it is free. I will donate 50% of the proceeds towards some charity and the other 50% will go back into the business for some purpose, not into my pocket. So start the bidding at $50,000. Lehman, 08, merch. Yours if you want it. 50K, starting bid. All right. Awesome, Dom. Well, that was a fun one. Nice to mix it up. Anything else before we close it out? No, that's it enjoyed it glad you learned a lot yes likewise i hope you did as well listeners as always if you have any feedback shoot it our way at hello at joincolossus.com and we will catch you next week on making media